0: Welcome to Art Scoping, I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: There'll probably be some kind of service, which is a electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that will be available on demand. So I order it from my iPhone. It'll land fairly near my house in Santa Monica. I'll hop on and 10 minutes later, I'll be at my office in downtown Los Angeles, 17 miles away.
0: That's John Rossant, founder and chairman of the New Cities Foundation co-founder of the Prince's Roundtable on Philanthropy, and founder and chief curator of Commotion LA and Miami. Commotion is the world's most important gathering of the leaders, technologies, and ideas powering the new mobility revolution. John was previously executive chairman of Publicis Live in Paris, which produces, among other things, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos and other WEF events around the world. In 2010, the President of France asked John to organize the EG8 Forum on the Future of the Internet in Paris. A former journalist, he held several senior editorial positions at Businessweek, including Europe Editor, as well as Paris, Rome, and Middle East Correspondent. He's received a number of prestigious awards, including the Overseas Press Club Award and the German Marshall Fund's Peter Weitz Award for Distinguished Reporting. John holds advanced degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the American University in Cairo. He's a member of the board of the Fondation Tocqueville in Paris, Humanity in Action, and the advisory board of NEOM. John, welcome to the podcast. Are you calling in from an airport lounge?
1: Well, for a change, I'm not, actually. I'm calling from my office at the Los Angeles Cleantech Incubator in downtown Los Angeles.
0: Excellent, and so it it must be spotless if it's clean tech. How, what kind of it's an incubator spotless. is it?
1: It's you know funded by the city and various donors, and it's been around for a while. And they're very much at the heart of clean tech startups. You know, from e-bikes to, uh, you know, I guess not nuclear power plants, but uh, you know, sort of solar power things like that. I mean, California and L.A. in particular is very much leading the way in America, as
0: you as you, you must be aware. Yes, sir. But our audience is unaware that you and I have known each other since we were in short pants. But today you are among the worldliest people I know. And while the rest of us were on our couches finishing Netflix, you managed throughout the height of the pandemic to travel to very far flung places. Can you share any anecdotes about what that was like?
1: Well, I'm not really at the height of the pandemic. I mean, I was locked down like like everybody else, I suppose, but I did manage to get vaccinated quite early on in the process. So, you know, I was able to kind of traverse sort of weird, empty, dystopian airports. Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, you know, four or five months ago, just nobody knew what to do, you know, what documents to have, when you should wear a mask, what sort of tests you should have taken, you know, 48 hours previously. And yeah. so, you know, I had to get off the plane and then take two tests. Very odd. Traveling is a pain unless, you know, unless you have your own plane. And right. so I guess, the, you know, one maybe is lucky enough to know people who have their own plane. Sometimes right. a right. good
0: resource. John, I mentioned in the introduction, the New Cities Foundation. Can you give us a bit of background on it and what led you to start it?
1: Well, look, I mean, I've been completely obsessed and fascinated by cities from a very early age. And you mentioned that we knew each other when we were short pants. For the record, I want to say I've never worn short pants in my life. But, But give me some evidence. But anyway, I mean, growing up in Manhattan in the kind of environment i grew up I, my uncle was a well-known urban planner and architect who uh, did the first uh, lower manhattan plan so it was very much part of the kind of conversation at the dinner table about how cities develop etc the problematics of cities so about 15 years ago, I was uh, based in Paris, and I was uh, in charge, among other things, of producing the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos every year in Davos, Switzerland, which is you know this grand get-together of the high and mighty and the great and the good of this world at the end of every January, in a small ski town in the Alps. And one of the things that I began to feel very, very keenly was that cities needed to have a seat at the table at the kind of Davosian conversation? That um, mm-hmm. there had been very much a focus on nation states, and a President Trump would be invited, or Chancellor Merkel, and etc. But no mayors at the time. And mm-hmm. I felt that you know cities really are where things happen. Uh, you know, and and if you have a smart mayor, empowered mayor, they can really move a city forward if there's sort of an alignment in a way that countries are hard to move. They're very big things. And I felt that, you know, the impact of particularly of connectivity technologies and the internet on city building is going to be really massive and game-changing. It'll be somehow the next big thing, the rise of the smart city, et cetera. At that time, people really weren't talking about smart cities. But I wanted to move the conversation at Davos towards one that focused more on cities. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, there was some support, but there was also a lot of pushback uh, at mm-hmm. the time. The World Economic Forum approach to issues is what they call the multi stakeholder approach, where you bring in private sector leaders, public sector leaders, academic leaders, put them together, and, and you can sort of help solve big problems. And I felt that was a very good model actually for the city. No one owns the city. So I decided, you know, about 15, 14 years ago to set up my own. Uh, independent nonprofit institution called the New Cities Foundation that would look at city building in the world, would look at the impact of new technologies, new connectivity technologies on cities. And so that's what happened. You know, we had initial support, you know, right after the wheels hit the ground from, from, I think at the time, Cisco, Ericsson, and General Electric. And we've been, you know, growing ever since. And uh, as you well know, as you were a part of the story for a while,
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's a remarkable set of conversations, of events, of ways of thinking about the evolution of cities. And part of the dialogue has touched, of course, on public spaces and public art and public design installations have figured, of course, in urban revitalization. One example here in New York is Thomas Heatherwick's The Vessel, a commission in Hudson Yards. You must have an opinion about that.
1: Oh dear! I was afraid you were going to ask me that (laughs) because I don't have a very high opinion uh, either of the vessel or of Heatherwick. I mean, I think Heatherwick is—he's an interesting designer, but you know, he's very problematic one. But he's one of those who you know the corporate world love, and it's sort of you know that old adage: you never got fired for sort of ordering IBM. It's sort of the same thing, I think, in the corporate world. Oh, you know, let's have a Thomas would he's so cool, and we'll be really with the in crowd. But his work tends to be quite problematic. I mean, the cost overruns that he has are are tremendous. Very similar in some ways to uh, Calatrava, the Spanish architect, who I think is somewhat overrated and overused you know, you have mayors all over the world, let's have a Calatrava bridge, and we'll be a cool city. It takes more Mm -hmm. than a Calatrava bridge to be an interesting city. And it takes more than a Hetherick commission to make, say, a Hudson Yard sink. When you look at cities, you very quickly look at the mobility and transportation piece. And so some of our first work at New Cities uh, looked at, for example, commuting and looked at how to leverage social media networks to improve the experience of commuting, but then you know, about seven eight years ago, Google actually contacted the New Cities Foundation because they were beginning to fund in a very massive way fundamental R and D into driverless cars, autonomous mobility, which would later be hived off into a Google owned company called Waymo. But at the time, they really were trying to think about the future of autonomous driving how it would fit into an urban context and so they knocked on our doors we were very happy to welcome obviously welcome google as a member of the new cities foundation and it was exactly the same moment that a little startup in san francisco called uber began to to have operations in San Francisco and then New York. It was that, you know, if you remember that excitement about sort of chauffeured cars on demand, and it was just amazing. You just, you know, pressed your iPhone and 10 minutes later, the, you know, an Uber car would arrive. I think it was those two things, autonomous mobility and ride hailing. We realized at the sort of level of the New Cities Foundation that this disruption in mobility and urban mobility would be absolutely transformational for cities large and small everywhere on the planet. I think we're beginning to see that now as this mobility revolution sort of spreads out. This is coming and this is going to be, this will transform your life. You know, when you start tinkering with how goods and people move around, you really start tinkering with, you know, space and time and movement, it's very fundamental things. Mobility hadn't really changed in a hundred years since Henry Ford started turning out the Model T. You have, you know, individually owned cars, you know, buses, metros in the bigger cities, but there was not much else. So, you know, in the last few years, we've had the micromobility revolution. So you have e-scooters, e-bikes, sort of in every major city in the world. I just got back last week from Moscow, full of e-scooters, by the way, uh, which made that city come alive. You have electric mobility, you know, hydrogen-powered mobility in a few years, a few very short years. We'll be moving around in the third dimension of mobility in the sky. So to go from, let's say, instead of my taking my e-bike this morning in Santa Monica, California, going to 10 minutes, getting on the metro, going across Los Angeles on the light rail, and then getting out and then e-biking to my office... There'll probably be some kind of service, which is a electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that will be available on demand. So I order it from my iPhone. It'll land fairly near my house in Santa Monica. I'll hop on and 10 minutes later, I'll be at my office in downtown Los Angeles, 17 miles away. That's the future, by the way. It's going to be great because I think it'll be cities will have to be redesigned, You know, cities have been 20th century cities have been designed uniquely around the motor car, and then a little bit around public transit. Mm-hmm. But the cities of the future will not be designed around the motor car. They'll have other, you know. For example, I'm, as you may know, I'm on the board of a big new city project in the northwest of Saudi Arabia called NEOM, and NEOM is designed as a truly 21st century new city in that there will be no individually-owned cars, certainly no internal combustion engine cars. Everything will be based on very high degree of, sort of autonomous vehicles, electric, robotic aircraft, etc.
0: In terms of all of the innovation you've described, we're seeing a lot of new electric and hydrogen-powered vehicles. How do you think the car industry is doing in design terms in creating these things?
1: Yeah, God, that's a great question. And I think Really badly to begin with. <laughs> so if you look at, for example, I drive a Chevy a Chevrolet bolt, which is a wonderful little car, but it's just crap design. Chevy has not renewed the design over the years. The same thing with some of the early sort of BMW electric cars. I mean not a lot of thought was given to redesigning the car. You don't have to have internal combustion engine in the front of the car. You have the big electric battery which sort of runs along the bottom of the chassis. So it can potentially free up the design of the car. But car designers haven't really taken advantage of that. and they're still designing cars to make them look like internal combustion engine cars. You know, Tesla, it's a well-designed car. They've got a good German designer there. It's a nice car. It's not really revolutionary in terms of design. So I think we're going to be seeing some really cool new designs. If you look at, for example, the Lucid, which is a kind of luxury version of the Tesla, an interesting company, their new car, it's a beautiful, beautifully designed car. So I think companies, OEMs, are starting to think more about the design component, which is important.
0: You work closely with everyone from transportation ministers and department heads and mayors to people who are involved in a bureaucratic context. What are some of the obstacles to some of the green transportation innovations you're describing?
1: Unfortunately, I think some people in this country anyway have an attitude about the individually owned internal combustion engine vehicle the way some people think about the second amendment to the constitution that is you know I want my gun, I want my car, no one's going to take mm-hmm. it away from me. And I've seen conversations in which, you know, people stand up and say, you're never going to take my car, you know, this is a <laughs> God given right to go on the freeway, etc. I mean, we're going to have to rethink that. And I think it's it's a, you know, it's a communication problem you know, for the government, for schools, for OEMs, etc. First we have to move towards uh, zero emission vehicles if we want a you know, remote chance of saving the planet. Two, I think we have to move towards more shared kind of mobility. I mean COVID put a bit of a dent in that, but I think that conversation's going to come back. The, the idea of in LA for example, as you may know, there are more cars than people. This is crazy, you know mm-hmm. it, it, it's we have to find ways to get people out of cars. They clog up the freeways, the streets, uh, they pollute, et cetera. It's a very important problem.
0: So that's a problem of perception on the part of the individual. What about from a political point of view or a policy point of view? Is it the big oil that's keeping it from moving along more quickly, or what is it?
1: No, because I think big oil is sensing to a large degree that you know, the end is nigh. I think there's no question that they're all having, you know, in one form or another some kind of existential crisis. And so they're investing heavily in, in renewable energy look, I think it's partially in this country. Anyway, it's a question of the federal government getting behind this. And I think that's one of the big shifts as uh, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Biden is clearly, you know, pro-electric. He's, you know, we've rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. So there's uh, real federal money now going into Renewable transportation, especially with the, we'll see what kind of infrastructure bill is passed. But there's a sea change that's happening now. I think we you know, if you look to two years ago, you know, electric car, you know, ooh, I, I don't want one of those. Now people are pretty interested. All of the big OEMs have committed massively to, you know, multi billion dollar spending programs on electric. So we're certainly starting to move in the right direction.
0: There must be some kind of tension. You mentioned the federal government's investments and you mentioned Uber as a private company. What are the tensions between that form of public investment and then the disruptive smaller companies that turn into bigger companies?
1: Oh my God, how long do we have, Max? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting tension that you mentioned, I think, is around data, frankly. And, you know, Uber as a private company really want to be in charge of all the data that they have about where we go, how often we go there, what time we go somewhere, et cetera. I mean, that is incredibly valuable data. The cities, many cities are saying, you know, there's a public right-of-way and we have a say at how that public right-of-way is used. So it cannot be a private operator like an Uber or a Lyft that decides that. So there has to be a kind of equitable position between an Uber or Lyft and a city, and that's largely discussion around data. Uber, Lyft want to have a kind of closed Uber Garden in which people play. Cities and others want that garden to be open to have more competition, etc., and also for the public domain to have it. Say, I think that's important. One of the big tensions that you refer to, I think, going forward is going to be between the public sphere and the private sphere you know the public administration's private operators my view is that and something that we're very committed to at commotion which is the company i lead which is very involved in emerging mobility we have a big event in commotion la in los angeles and in miami but one of the things we're really committed to is making that a fruitful collaboration. The the future of mobility in our lives is going to depend on a very vigorous collaboration between public and private. It could be in the future, it's sort of a seamless journey that begins on public transit. So you take a metro and you get out of the metro and you hop on an e-bike that maybe a private operator owns and operates. But there's a seamlessness about that journey. So you pay once for the whole journey, for example, you can map it out. So we're moving towards that as a society. And I think that you know we're going to see many very interesting models of public-private partnerships.
0: John, I'm guessing the U.S. is an exception in this whole world because centralized governments in Europe and Asia and South America would look at this differently, no?
1: Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think
0: one of the great things about our country, about the United
1: States, is that is it's vibrancy, it's its vibrant private sector, etc. The public sector is so often so dysfunctional. When someone says the words like central planning, we reach for a revolver uh, here in this country. Whereas, you know, the French or the Germans love that. And it's, you know, much more top-down society. As an American, I guess I'm more comfortable with the way things are here. But I think we need you know, more intelligent central planning here, central planning at the level of a city or county, in some cases of the country. But here in LA, even it, it's impossible, I mean, LA County, this sort of broad, grand, polycentric urban region you know, there are 88 different municipalities of which the city of LA is only one. And so you have terrific sort of siloization of, you know, competencies. And that just makes it doing anything very slow and complicated and difficult often. I'm no fan. I'm It's probably really the wrong way to put it. Obviously, I'm no fan of Vladimir Putin. But I must say, I was in Moscow last week and so impressed. With the public transportation system and the way it integrates with private e-scooter players or e-bike operators, because it is centrally planned, um, you know they've they've done a good job at that. But you know I don't want, obviously don't want to trade in our system for theirs. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what about in Asia, where there is always another innovation coming around the corner in South Korea and Japan? How is yeah. that shaping up?
1: In terms of mobility and sort of urban things, I mean, there's a big China conversation, and China is its own world. Uh, you know, Chinese cities are better and better organized, but you know, you have these really big Chinese mobility players now that we don't actually see that much in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. But they're, you know, uh, you know, in terms of electric mobility, I mean, they're the big players around. No, what's interesting about Asian cities is. They do the public transit piece just so well. If you've been on the metro in Seoul, Korea, or in Shanghai, or the bullet train in Shanghai, the metro in Tokyo, for example, it's incredibly well planned. And one of the things I love about Asian cities, particularly in Japan, and particularly in Japan, but also in Korea, is that they have, you know, they've taken transit-oriented development to kind of the next phase. And so you have, for example, the Tokyo metro system is absolutely the world's best, most efficient. It's, you know, the delays are in the sort of millisecond. Uh, it's spotless, et cetera. You have, I think, four or five privately owned metro companies controlling the network. Each of them is profitable and they work together in some absolutely brilliant way. Everybody's happy. And one of the ways they do this is they uh, if you take like shinjuku station in tokyo it's a massive mall so the the metro operators are also developers the economic rent in a sense comes from the traffic and from the commercial operations and stations we don't do that here so if you go to you know typical la metro station in los angeles it's completely devoid of commerce. You can't buy a can of Coke, even though it might be 110 degrees out. There's usually not even a bathroom. And that's sad because I think we should open these spaces up to commerce in a smart way. Uh, and You know, it's good for economic development. People want them. It makes a journey on public transit
0: much more compelling. So I wish we could kind of figure that out. Well, you might have to wait for a drone to bring you that Coke, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose, or a piece of
0: pizza, yeah. <laughs> John, you mentioned you use an e-bike in Los Angeles. How else do you get around?
1: Well, I have my electric bolt, um, mm-hmm. which has you know, a range of about 200 miles. So that's good to go all around L.A., and it's mm-hmm. you know, this brilliant little car. costs very, very little. It uh, costs almost nothing to run. And I can't ever imagine going back to a gasoline car. Like why would I even think about that? I have my e bike, I walk. And I you know, I'm happy to live in Santa Monica, which is walkable. I have a regular bike, and that's
0: kinda it. And then you have your airplane frequent flyer miles, which are another way yes. you travel.
1: Yes, that's
0: true. <laughs> and speaking of that, back to your days at the World Economic Forum. What yeah. was it like to wrangle so many A-listers to jump on their private jets and end up in the little town of Davos?
1: <laughs> you, you, you—you'll have to pry the secrets out of me, Max. But, well, you um, don't
0: have to use any names, no, no, but just no, no. curiosity. Uh,
1: I mean, one of the interesting things is the big game in Davos, which people do not realize is it's everything is about status. And status in Davos is measured by which hotel you're in. And there are only, I think, three now, sort of five-star hotels. A lot of okay, kind of four-star, three-star hotels, and then some really crappy, smaller hotels. Because, you know, during the year, it's Mm -hmm. a ski station. Getting a suite at the Intercontinental or the Belvedere is, I mean, that's for Bill Gates, Or, you know, Queen Rania or someone like that. And there's such, it's so funny because sort of two, three months before Davos, the phone starts ringing and the messages start coming in. And I suddenly have thousands of best friends. Mm. think, you know, John, you know, could you possibly get me a room at the Belvedere? You know, I'd just be so grateful and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's really, you think this is the one thing people care about because that's Mm -hmm. how status is measured. It's where you stay in Dallas.
0: I mentioned you also shepherd an annual event in Monaco. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that's actually one that's not in the press. We keep it out of the press, but something that I started uh, 10 years ago now, actually, uh, with Prince Albert of Monaco, Prince Albert II. Um, He had just set up his own foundation called the Prince Albert II Foundation. And I was in Paris and I helped set up something called the Tocqueville Foundation, which looks at the work of Alexis de Tocqueville. And part of the mission of the Tocqueville Foundation is to promote philanthropy, the the practice of philanthropy in our societies, particularly in Western Europe, where kind of US style philanthropy is not as common and people expect the state to do a lot of the things that philanthropy does in the United States. But the state is sort of receding in Europe as it is elsewhere. So at the time I was, you know, putting together Davos, and I thought, well, gee, a lot of big global philanthropists come to Europe to go to Davos at the end of January. Why not ask a few of them to stop over in Monaco on the eve of Davos for very high-level roundtable, kind of off the record, completely off the record about philanthropy, the role of philanthropy or sort of best practices, et cetera. And it's, you know, we've been a group of about 30, 35 people over the years and it's sort of disconnected from Davos, but it's become kind of big thing in itself. We also give every year something called the Prince's prize for innovative philanthropy, which Prince Albert hands out. And it's a sort of global competition that we organize every year, and it awards people who are innovators in the philanthropic sphere. And so it's just Mm -hmm. a good day and a half of of discussion at a very high level, and something I I look forward to every year, I must say.
0: Well, John, (laughs) uh, keeping in touch with you, tracking you down is very hard for me. So selfishly, I'll ask also on behalf of our listeners, how do we understand what you're up to? Where best to follow you online?
1: Ah, yes. So either in New Cities, which is the New Cities Foundation, which is easy, newcities.org. And then everything we're doing in an emerging and advanced mobility, go to commotionla.com or commotionmiami.com. You can learn everything there is to know about the sort of next gen planes, motorcycles, trains, etc., that we'll be using in the future.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing you in person at some point before too long and (laughs) maybe on a drone. Yeah. And perhaps (laughs) some some other means, but John, thank you for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate
1: it. Thanks, Max. And, uh, you know, keep up the good work
0: with art scoping. I love it. We've been speaking today with John Rossant, founder and chairman of the new cities foundation, co-founder of the Prince's round table on philanthropy and founder and chief curator of commotion LA and Miami. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.